The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody, come see us because we're coming to see you. Specifically, if you live in Chicago, on July 24th, we're going to be at the Harris Theater. And the following night, we're going to be at the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto. And that's just the beginning. That's right. We're also going to our beloved Wilbur Theater, which we own, in Boston (laughs) on October 29th. And then our first visit to Portland, Maine at the State Theater on August 30th. Yep, that's going to be followed in October. We're going to take a little break because that's a lot of touring. In October on the 9th, we're going to be at the Plaza Live in Orlando. And then on October 10th, we're going to be at the Civic Theater in New Orleans. That's right. And in October, we're going to round it all out at the Bell House in Brooklyn for three shows, October 23rd, 24th, and 25th. Yep. So go to SYSKlive.com for tickets and information. And we will see you starting this July in Chicago. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's Jerry over there. And this is coming up on the 50th anniversary, Chuck, of the first time humans ever set foot on the moon. That's one small step for podcasts. Oh wow! One giant leap for podcasting. That's a uh, that's a really good Neil Armstrong. <laughs> oh boy, that was dumb. I liked it though. Uh, I think this serves as a companion piece to our June 2014 episode on the space race. Uh, yeah, and was the moon landing a hoax? We did that one too. Jeez, did we do that? Mm-hmm. This is silliness so long ago. 2009, 10. That sounds about right. I think we landed on it not being a hoax, (laughs) if I remember correctly. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. This is a good companion to the space race one. I went back and watched the the full CBS broadcast of this. It's like 42 minutes long. Uh Uh-huh. Really cool. Yeah, I mean— Like Cronkite's kind of crying. It's easy. Well, he was a big crybaby. Everyone (laughs) knows that about Cronkite. He'd cry at the drop of a hat. Crykite, huh? Yeah, basically. (laughs) You should have seen him when Princess Di got married. Good Lord. Oh, boy. So um, there's nothing wrong with crying, Walter. No. So, Chuck, I was reading about that, that transmission. Mm-hmm. And the, the, it's pretty amazing that the world got to see Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin bouncing around on the moon. Yeah, in the 60s. Yes, in the 60s. Like at the end of the 60s, but still. This was far and away the first time anybody had ever done anything like this. Yeah. But what I did not know until this very day is that the guy who invented basically the the um, 
the whole setup for this for Westinghouse okay. that that carried this out. Um, when he saw that 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 transmission come through, he cried. He, he was a he almost had a heart attack. Oh, it was way way worse visually than it was supposed to be. Uh, okay. It so was, he was upset at the picture quality. Yes. He, it, Come on. I know. That's what I'm saying, He's too. Like, moon. like, you see this and you're like, wow, that's really good. No, this, it, apparently, he had not factored in the compression that had to take place mm-hmm. from the, the signal. Like, if you see the raw signal, yeah. like, it was just crisp and clear, um, or you imagine it would be. It turns out NASA lost the, the magnetic tapes that have the original raw signal on it. Nice. Um, but when it was compressed for TV, it, it kind of messed it up a little bit. But he, 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 he apparently went with it and was like, no, it's still good. Yeah. We're still broadcasting live from the moon. Yeah, which is beaming it down, then back up, then back down. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what does he expect? I guess he was a bit of a perfectionist. So he had a heart attack? That's yeah. a little dramatic. Well, I said he had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, I thought he literally had a heart no, attack. No, 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 no. Okay. No. It's like, you man, know me. I speak in figuratives. He sure beats Cronkite. <laughs> he just fell right over. You know what's funny is Cronkite missed the second half of the quote. He said, he said that's one small step for man. I didn't catch that second part. <laughs> and then a couple of minutes later when Neil Armstrong is talking about the – so he quickly goes in, you know, he has a great quote. Then Wait, Armstrong, are you kidding now? No, I'm serious. Wow. Uh, so when Armstrong, he says that great quote, and then he quickly kind of goes into work mode, and he's just talking about the surface of the moon, how it looks like uh, charcoal dust, basically. He's like, a lot of dust <laughs> in there. <laughs> and uh, Cronkite interrupts him, basically, and talks over him. He's like, okay, we have the second part. Uh, apparently, he said, one giant leap for mankind. Oh, okay. It's like, yeah, all right, well. I have never seen that broadcast. It's kind of cool. Sure, yeah. They have a simulation going uh, so you can, you know, a really kind of corny-looking 60s simulation mm-hmm. of the lunar module landing. Mm-hmm. And then it picks up with the live feed. Does it look like that mountain climber on the— Sort of, on the, the prices, right? Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't unlike that. So, for those of you who haven't called on yet, we're talking about the Apollo 11 moon landing, Mm -hmm. which happened on July 20th, 1969. Um, And there was a lot of work that went up to that. It didn't just happen overnight, (laughs) you know? And it actually all started, um, a lot of people trace it back to that speech that John Kennedy gave at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Oh, yeah. In 1961, I believe. Was May this, of, uh, sure, May 25th? Yeah, of 1961? Yeah. Okay, yeah, where he said that he basically challenged the United States to go to the moon, to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Uh, right. Right. He said, <laughs> he said, we go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's up there mocking us when we sleep. <laughs> he was quite insane. And I'm told it's uh, made of cheese. <laughs> right. Of the I finest want, quality. Bring me some of that cheese. He turned into Steinbrenner. Uh, George Steinbrenner? Yeah, from Seinfeld. <laughs> so, yeah, this this is what really, I mean, the space race had been going on. And like I said, we did a pretty good show on that. Uh, in, <laughs> Way better on than this. June 5th, 2014. Sure. But, you know, most of the 1950s were consumed with the Russians and the United States, or the Soviets, rather, um, just sort of, well, we were in second place, but just yeah. one after the other, like, oh, they're doing this, and we got to do this, right. and they're doing this, and we got to do this. Yeah. Um, and or, the, or both pursuing the same goal, and sure. the Soviets beating us to it almost every time by three months. Yeah. Which is enough for the world to be like... <clears throat> but boy, we got the last laugh. 
We did, but that's what Kennedy they went bankrupt. <laughs> that's what Kennedy was doing. Well, you can thank Reagan for that. Yeah, that's what Kennedy was doing. Was uh, he was upping the ante? He's like, all right, enough of this tit for tat stuff. We're gonna <laughs> really stick it to him. And he said, we're going to the moon. We're going to put a person on the moon, a man on the moon. But, you know, if it were today, he'd say a human. Yeah, and I think, you know, we'll we'll talk more about what's actually gained by a, a man, uh, like sending a person to the moon. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it was a very much a symbolic thing right. to, to do this and to beat the Soviets there. Right. And to plant that American flag mm-hmm. firmly in that lunar soil. But that's one— one big reason why it was televised live from the moon. Number one, we were showing, we went to the moon world. It was broadcast around the world. But two, it documented it as proof that we were up there. To most people, it was documented (laughs) as proof. That's right. But then also, there was a certain amount of bravado in the fact that we were broadcasting from the moon live. Sure. So not only did we accomplish this one feat of sending people to the moon, we broadcasted it live, which is another feat as well. So we had the U.S. Ranger program from 61 to 65. And these are things that all, you know, like you said, it was a long process. Yeah. Building up to actually putting people there. And it's easy to overlook that, that like every every mission that was carried yeah. out was a test or they were trying to s- just build it by step by step. Sure. Yeah. Including like full on dress rehearsals. Yeah. Uh, so the Ranger program for four years sent nine missions. Uh, They're collecting data basically to say, here's how we can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, in 62, Ranger 4 reached the surface uh, but crashed. Uh, but then two years after that, Ranger 7 um, sent back more than 4,000 photographs. Not yeah. bad. Ranger 6 made it, but the camera failed. But get this, Ranger 3 and 5 missed. <laughs> it was like, That's oh, the- I can't slow down. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing that we were able to put people on the moon and bring them back safely. In a very short time. Like when you imagine all the things that can go wrong yeah, and what year it was, it's just, it's nuts to think about. Yeah, so you said Ranger 7 landed in 1964 and sent America back its own first yeah. images of the moon. Mm-hmm. Five years later, we put humans on the moon. That's a very Not short bad. amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Soviets were the first to... Um, so, you know, these rangers, they were basically like, take pictures, take pictures, take pictures, crash. Right, right. But the Soviets were the first one to actually land, uh, gently land a spacecraft on the moon without just crashing into it. They were also the first. So the very first step was lunar orbit. The second one was crashing on the moon. And then the third step was landing softly on the moon. And the Soviets beat us every step of the way. That's right. Which So it was a kind of um, gutsy for Kennedy to be like, we're going to be the first to the moon because yeah. we've been we've been behind every step of the way. I'm a, I bet the moon was like, WTF? Like, what's going right. on? Yeah. I've been up here for a long time, and now there's just a lot of activity. I'm getting all pockmarked. <laughs> People are crashing stuff on me. Here's a dude. He's coming at me. He's about to jump on me. That was the moon's quote. I gotcha. <laughs> okay. So all this led up to, obviously— um, these these tests, pre-flight tests on the ground, which uh, some uh, ended in tragedy. Oh, yeah, Apollo uh, 1. N- yeah, notably in 1967, uh, a fire swept through the Apollo command module and killed Gus Grissom, uh, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, they died of asphyxiation. And after reading up on it, there was like, there were so many things wrong. 
Like their spacesuits were flammable. Oh yeah. They had a hatch door that opened in and like took a long time to open. Well, the the um fire itself created a vacuum that made it impossible for the hatch to open. Like there was yeah. it was impossible for that hatch to open. It was a really, really sad accident, but it might have been one that was like like I wish there weren't people involved, but it might have been something necessary to, you know, get everything right. It definitely changed the mentality of the the space program and in, in that safety became even more important. Yeah, and I think Gus Grissom was the first of the Mercury 7 to die. Oh, really? Yeah, very sad. Yeah. 41 years old. Was he just 41? He looked way old. It's crazy, like, what 41, what age that was back then. I think everyone that was, like, 30 to 60 looked the same. Pretty much. You know, I can't tell the difference. Pretty much. So... We've we've gone to lunar orbit. We've crash landed on the moon. There's a there's a bunch of um, steps that we were taking in the, that made up the space race. One of the next one was to get somebody outside of Earth's orbit and yeah. into lunar orbit. Big deal. The Soviets beat us there too, but just very shortly after that, um, I think it was Apollo Seven uh, spent a bunch of time orbiting the Earth. I think they made it to. Oh, I know the big the big thing about Apollo Seven. So we've gone we've gone from like pioneer ranger and pioneer ranger and surveyor mm-hmm. into now these are crewed missions. The Apollo program, mm-hmm. um, Apollo One ended in tragedy, uh, and then it, Apollo Seven is where um, it really starts to become significant, where things are really picking up by leaps and bounds. This is 1968, less than a year before we would land on the moon. And Apollo 7's big one is that this is the first time that we're testing the command module that we would use to send um, Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins up to the moon. Yeah, so they orbited uh, orbited the Earth 163 times, Mm -hmm. spent uh, almost 11 days in space. Mm -hmm. So that was a big success. This was uh, Walter Shara Jr., uh, Don Easel and Walter Cunningham. From old Sarum. <laughs> uh, and then Apollo 8 was a big deal. Um, it was happening so fast. That was really uh, 7 fast. was in October. Yeah. Apollo 8 was in December of the right. same year. Um, and this was the first one to use uh, the Saturn rocket, which was a big, big deal. Yeah, the Saturn rocket is, um, you can actually see one on its side and walk right under it at Kennedy Space Center. Yeah, it's pretty in their cool. museum, right? And um, it's bigger than, I think, a 36-story building. It's just this enormously powerful rocket. And um, when they started testing the Saturn, this was, this was like when the Saturn showed that it would work, we, it, people started to realize, like, we're actually, we might do this. Right. Because we'd already tested out the command module, and um, now the Saturn was up. And the Saturn came in three stages. There was the, um, the first stage that produced, like, 7.7 million pounds of thrust, which is a lot more than, you know, you produce when you jump up in the air. <laughs> I, so, I, looked, so the, <laughs> I looked for an analogy. I couldn't find any good comparison. No Big Macs. It's just a lot of thrust. Yeah, so this was the thrust that got, the, this is the launch thrust. Yeah, it got you out of Earth's gravity or the bulk of the gravity. Yeah. And then so that first big old stage would fall away. And then the second stage got you all the way out of Earth's gravity. And then the third stage, that second stage would fall away. Then the third stage would propel you to the moon. So it was a three-stage rocket. And by the time that third stage had had fired and got you up to top speed, you were going something like 25,000 miles per hour in a little capsule at the top of a rocket. Amazing. It was, it was a very amazing rocket. 
Um, and this test, it was, I will go to my grave saying that. <laughs> and this test of the Apollo 8 mission showed that it would work. Yeah, so Apollo 9 follows just two and a half months, uh, three months later. And this one was a big deal because it actually um, practiced a very important procedure, which mm-hmm. was uh, the docking between the command module and the lunar module. So you've got this Saturn rocket that's providing the juice. Then you have the command module, which is where essentially where you're, you know, you're, you're flying, what you would think of as the, the spaceship. It's like the crew quarters, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's where the crew is. It's where they're flying. It's where they're eating and pooping and, mm-hmm. and sleeping. Uh, and then you actually need to land on the moon, and you don't do that in the command module. You do that in the lunar module. Right. But those two guys have to connect. Right. So the command module and the lunar module for launch are facing the same direction. But once they get out into a lunar trajectory, I, I, and I could not find why they designed it like this. Yeah, I couldn't either. But the, the lunar module, that thing that you've seen laying on the moon that looked just totally ungainly, mm-hmm. ungainly um, had to blast off, and it was tethered. Mm-hmm. It blasted off, turned around, and then redocked with the command module nose yeah. to nose. I don't think, I'm surprised that, there had to be something they just couldn't figure out a workaround for. I would love to know. Anybody who knows, please write in because I was looking knows. all over for it. But consider this, Chuck. You had two pieces of equipment that were facing the same direction, and you had to turn one around and face the other one. In space. At 25,000 <laughs> miles per hour. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive in that the they were able to do it. In the 60s, right? <laughs> so this was, this was Apollo 9 was the first to show... This is this is working like this is going to work. So they did that, and then Apollo ten uh, was the one. This was the last one in the dress rehearsal. The Apollo ten astronauts, you could call them um, understudies. Ju- I guess so. <laughs> Just really took it for the team. Yeah, I mean they did everything but touch down on the moon. Yeah, they they brought that. So they did this whole docking procedure where the the uh, lunar module was blasted off and turned around and nose to nose connected to the command module. Mm-hmm. And then they did the lunar landing thing where they blasted off the lunar module, brought it down within 50,000 feet mm-hmm. of the moon surface, and then took it back up and redocked again. I wonder if they were like, oh, it's right there. Maybe we should just, I wonder <laughs> too. Surely they joked at least. Yeah, probably so. But There's probably but, a lot of humor going on. I would hope so. <laughs> but the whole mission, though, is... You've got this this command module and the lunar module, and the command module, when the lunar module goes down to the moon and then back up, the command module is just flying around in a lunar orbit waiting to yeah. rendezvous again. So they did everything but touch down, and then they came back. And when they came back, they said, we're ready. This is it. That they was, said, we're ready. Yeah. Hint, hint. <laughs> uh, and that was like two months before yeah. Apollo 11 left it off. Should we take a break? I think so. All right, let's take a break and talk about uh, the stars of the show, Apollo 11. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It 
is a wise man, Marie is a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to shout out Apollo 10, by the way. Um, so with Apollo 11, the command module was named Columbia, mm-hmm. and the lunar module was famously named Eagle. Yeah. In Apollo 10, the command module was Charlie Brown, and the lunar module was Snoopy, Oh, which I love. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So everyone knows the, the three human beings that we sent up in Apollo 11, mm-hmm. Commander Neil Armstrong, uh, lunar module pilot Buzz Aldrin, and the other guy. I know, poor Michael Collins. (laughs) Yeah, command module pilot Michael Collins. And you really like, we want to sing his praises because it stinks to be known as the other guy, I would imagine. Sure. Everyone remembers those other two names. Ask Roger Daltrey. They got to, (laughs) what? (laughs) They got to uh, walk around on the moon while Michael Collins essentially babysat. Yeah, just the command module in the command module, eating ho hos, waiting yeah. for them to come back. That's that's unselfish. It uh, extremely, and I'm sure they were assigned these roles because of their, you know, what they had trained for. But to be the guy that's like, yeah, you know what, that's okay. I'll yeah, be, I'll be number three. That's what he did, though. Yep, he sat up there with the command module and made sure it stayed in orbit, and that's right. Just waited for the dudes to come back. So hats off to you, Michael Collins. Yep. <laughs> All right, so July 16th, 1969, 9.32 in the morning. I'm so excited. Apollo 11 uh, lifts off from JFK Space Center at Cape Canaveral. Mm-hmm. It's no uh, no coincidence there. <laughs> he said, or, uh, go get them. <laughs> and name it after me. So it was a, it was a huge moment um, for the sort of the end of the space race, you know, if it all went well. If it all went well. So, remember, we'd practiced everything up to the actual landing. Yeah. We'll get to the landing in a second. But um, Buzz Aldrin later said 
that he was the most worried about the landing because there were the most unknowns, the most questions remaining because it was the one thing that hadn't been studied and practiced and done before. Mm -hmm. And it was up to these guys. This is the last thing, the last part of this whole thing, and no one had done it. And so when they took off at 932, they went through, everything just went perfectly. The yeah. first stage fired fine. Second stage fired fine. The third stage got them into a lunar trajectory. And I think they traveled this 238,000 miles um, over about two and a half days before they started to reach lunar orbit. Yeah. So on July 19th is when they enter that orbit. They spend about a day there. Um, sort of, you know, there's a lot of checking on things. You don't just, you know, like, plow ahead with your, your plan. You take a day once you get up there sure. to make sure everything's working. They're checking the communication systems and basically uh, preparing for the big uh, the big show to come. <laughs> Convincing Michael Collins that he couldn't come. <laughs> Sorry. Still drawing straws up there yeah. in the orbit. Right. So uh, here was the kind of cool thing that I think um, maybe if you don't know this full story that's really pretty remarkable is the lunar module was – supposed to basically land on autopilot. Right. But they saw where they were headed. Uh, they didn't, you know, the moon doesn't have an atmosphere. They had never really done this. So they didn't know exactly how to calculate their altitude and airspeed and realized in short order they were heading toward uh, a crater with very steep, sharp rims. Mm -hmm. And landing either on those rims or down in that crater was no good. No. So Neil Armstrong said, Screw it. I'm going to fly this baby down. He did. <laughs> he wasn't even the lunar module pilot. He just took over, I guess, as commander. Yeah. Because if they were going to crash, it was going to be on him. I need to see this movie. Have you seen it yet? No, not yet. No. And there's another documentary, I think, just called Apollo 11 that's coming out. It, it, oh, it'll have been out because we're releasing this around the, oh, okay. the anniversary. So I think it came out in late June, maybe on CNN or something. All right. Yeah. So, um... So Armstrong had to take over the controls. And again, no one had ever done this before. No. And this guy is landing a lunar module basically manually. Yeah. And this was unscheduled. He had to make the thing travel further away from the spot it was going to land. And so when they finally landed, um, they had something like 30 seconds of fuel left. That's nuts. And it was a little hairy. And there was a very famous uh, quote that came out of uh, the Eagle Lander. It said, Houston, this is Tranquility Base. The Eagle has landed. And Tranquility, or Houston said, thank goodness. Yeah, Houston actually said, you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Uh, and funny enough, that was Charlie Duke. Who would, oh, was it? Uh, he was the Capcom on the ground in Houston, but he would later be up in the air in Apollo 16. Yep. Pretty neat. And I'll bet he was wearing a tie with short sleeve dress button <laughs> shirt. Probably so. That's what all those guys wore. Yeah, the problem back then was you could never tell car salesmen apart from regular people. <laughs> right. From an engineer <laughs> or a teacher. I bet your dad rocked that look. Oh, well into the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> with the old uh, yep. pocket protector. Mm -hmm. So they landed and... Uh, they were going to abort their mission right there and go right back up. Well, the, no, they, they set it up so that they could abort at the drop of a hat if they had to. 
I think it was part of the oh, procedure. Oh, okay. I thought they were going to abort. No, no. I think they, they the first thing they did was prepare for an abort gotcha. in case something went wrong. They wouldn't have to prepare to abort. They'd okay. Just be well, that to, makes more sense. Like, press the button and take off. All right. I thought I got down there and was like, let's go back up. <laughs> exactly. I'm having second <laughs> thoughts about being the first person to walk on the moon. Uh, well, it's, that, that actually does make a lot more sense then because what they were supposed to do was take a four-hour rest uh-huh. um, for safety, but they were all itching to go. So right. they were like, no, we're going to work through this. Yeah. It still took about four hours just to get out onto the moon. Mm-hmm. But they were hard at work the whole time. They weren't taking a snooze. Yeah, which I guess meant it would have taken them eight hours had they taken that snooze. Yeah, but they did take a snooze. Uh, later on. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's something that I didn't realize about the, the moon landing. They spent a total of 21 hours on the moon and only two and a half hours of it out walking around on the moon. Yeah. The rest of the time they were in the lunar module, including... Uh, seven and a half hours of sleep. I guess, I mean, they needed it. So I was like, how did they sleep? I bet very soundly. And I thought, I've got it, drugs. I'll bet they took drugs. Oh, you think? They did not. They had 16 tablets of Secanol on them. Uh Uh-huh. They took zero. Although later, um, later lunar landers would, would take a significant amount of Secanol. But Buzz Aldrin and... Um, Neil Armstrong didn't take any Secanol, although they did take Dexedrine tablets during the mission. So they were pepped up. Oh, okay. Which is hilarious. Which means they probably crashed. I guess so, but they were not in any shape to sleep. But they still slept for seven and a half hours. I bet that's some of the quietest sleep. I don't know. Moon, I'd just be, sleep? I would be too excited. <laughs> but yeah, I guess so. Maybe just being there and having already gone and walked out on the moon, when you come back in, you're right. like, ready for a rest. Yeah, so uh, 650 million people watched this. It's about a fifth of the world's population at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Armstrong spent about 20 minutes out there by himself, which I imagine was something else. It's not like Aldrin crashed his party. He's like, come on. <laughs> but 20 minutes out on the moon by himself, like it's just it's hard to even fathom what that was, was like or would be like now even. Um, then Aldrin follows him down, and his description of the lunar surface uh, was – Magnificent Desolation. I, I never knew that before, did you? Yeah, I'd heard that. That's pretty cool. And um, they started working. They started collecting samples, uh, surface material, moon rocks, uh, basically taking note, notations on, like, what the gravity was like. Right. Uh, because it wasn't no gravity. It was one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they they were able to hop around and jump around have like, you, have like you you're seen, in a swimming pool. I've, kind of, yeah. yeah. Have you seen that uh, footage of uh, Jack Schmidt from Apollo 17? No. <laughs> he keeps falling down. Oh, really? He, like, had a collection bag. He was putting stuff in, and he'd, like, drop it, and he'd bend over and get it and, like, kind of come back up and then, like, basically almost <laughs> somersault. Like, he was having a really hard time. And they figured out, like, pretty quickly, you you can't just walk on the moon, especially in these spacesuits. You have to hop, right? You have to hop, but I think even hopping is not just like innate. Well, sure. Know? So you can fall over, but as I'm sure far there's as a I, learning curve, right? But I, I did not see that Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong fell down. <laughs> Me no fall down. <laughs> who, who was it that fell? Uh, Jack? Jack Schmidt from Apollo 17. Oh, Klutzy Jack. That was his nickname. Yeah, just look up astronaut <laughs> falls down on the moon. It's pretty fun to watch, especially if you listen to Yakety Sax on right. another tab. <laughs> So we mentioned that American flag, that iconic flag drop, um, or flag stick, or flag raise. What would you call that? Uh, All of the above? Uh, I don't know. Commie poke? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's a great drink, too, by the way. The commie poke? Uh-huh. So the poll went in um, the first, like, six inches or so very easily. And they're like, oh, this is a breeze. And then it hit something super hard. <laughs> right. And I guess they were like, oh, it's not so easy. So they had to lean the flag back. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, they, they kind of— Oh, uh, just wriggled it back and forth? Right. Thank you, because I realized people can't see what right. I was doing. <laughs> but, yeah, and in doing this, this is really important. In doing that, they created ripples in this flag— and that's the oh. that's what moon hoax people point to. Really? Moon it's truthers. Like there's no wind on the moon? Yeah. They're like, how is there wind, you idiots? Obviously, <laughs> this is here on Earth. And that is the that is the explanation, that when they were wriggling it back and forth, gotcha. it created ripples, and that you can see in footage the astronauts moving around the flag, yeah. and the flag's ripples remain static. Right. So, no, there's not any wind on the moon. But that's not when that did that to the flag on the moon. Yeah, and I saw about six years ago, they they feel pretty good that most of those flags, what are there, seven in all? Six? Six, I believe. Are still there. They should still be there. I don't know how they would fall off the moon. Well, not fall off, but just the, the, the temperature swings on the moon. There, oh, that's true. There was a lot of surmising that they wouldn't have survived this stuff. Okay. Um, but Really? The, yeah. Huh. And the solar radiation and everything, and we'll we'll get to all that stuff. But it did um, it did say that they took a lot of pictures of the various times of day, mm-hmm. and they think they have found. I don't think they found Apollo Eleven, but you know, it's not like they can get it from the surface. So these are all aerial shots. Right. So they're comparing like shadows, basically. Gotcha. And saying, oh well, it looks to me like this is the flag. Really? Yeah. So are they still standing up? Do they think? Well, I don't think you can tell. Oh, okay. But if it's casting a shadow, it must be. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Right. Yeah, very, you need a job at NASA, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Come on and be like that shadow. It proves it's standing up, egghead. Uh, but in all, for Apollo 11, they collected about 50 pounds of uh, lunar material, took a bunch of pictures, uh, took two core tube samples, mm-hmm. and um, like you said, spent, what, two and a half hours out there? Yep. Just romping around, having a good time. Having a good time. And 21 hours total on the uh, on the lunar surface – and then they, at, after, well, after about 21 hours, mm-hmm. the lunar module went, which no one realizes, but that's the sound that it makes in space. <laughs> that's right. And it went up and rendezvoused with the um, the the uh, con- command module. It worked. In a very uh, passive-aggressively hostile Michael Collins, <laughs> who was very quiet for the rest of the trip. But they docked again. Yeah. They docked like they, the docking procedure after launch. It When it rendezvoused, it docked with it. They got out. And then they said, so long, Eagle. Thanks for everything. Yeah. Blasted it off again and just sent it on a crash course to the moon's surface. And where it, its crash site is, no one knows. It's an unknown site. Um, but it's on there somewhere. But that's what they did. They said they used the Eagle to go down. Come back up, and then they send it back to Mama. So what happens on the way back? It's is it? There's two scenarios. It's either those two guys can't stop talking about it, and Michael Collins is <laughs> right. just like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, but it's great. Or Michael Collins is like, oh, what was it like, guys? What was it like? And they're like, oh, you you wouldn't understand. Yeah, we could we could we could describe it, but it wouldn't make sense to your brain. <laughs> yeah, those are people like the the solar eclipse. Either one of people. those. That's a bad right. Yeah, you really had to see totality to you know. If you didn't, then just forget it. That's a that's a bad outcome for Michael Collins. Either way, though, pretty bad. The long flight home. 
Um, but it's amazing that they were able to not only redock, right? But th- they were able to splash down in Hawaii mm-hmm. alive. Yeah, there was one other part. So the command module technically had another part, the service module that had like the oxygen and the water and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and they 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 scuttled that on the way back in, and then the just the command module made its entry back into the Earth's atmosphere, Man. going again about twenty five thousand miles per hour, um, and heating up to something like 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And they had created this heat shield that they knew worked because they tested it on former Apollo or other Apollo missions. Yeah. But, I mean, still, every time you've got three guys in a little tiny capsule going 25,000 miles an hour hurtling toward Earth with the outside temperature of 5,000 degrees, it's kind of hairy. So, yeah, when they splashed down off the coast of Hawaii, it was a big, big deal. Like, it, it it had been successful. And actually, the... The stated primary objective, the primary mission mm-hmm. of Apollo 11 was to send a human into space, land them on the moon, and bring them back safely. Yeah. The thing that Kennedy challenged the United States to do, and when they splashed down and they were all safe and sound, Apollo 11 was successful. Yeah, I think that uh, for all these Apollo missions, the reentry is always the biggest. Well, I mean, there's tons of concerns, but right. reentry is just so tough. Yeah. And that they made this, uh, they made a, a basically a covering that was meant to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty ingenious. Sacrificial lamb yeah. covering. It's like it's supposed to burn. Right. And everything inside should be okay. Right. Should be. <laughs> I can't imagine that feeling, man. I can't either. And the fear, like. I, I, I'm sure it is fearful, but I wonder also if like. Once you hit the atmosphere, I'll bet you can start to feel the speed you're going just oh, from the sure. shaking. You know, out in space, I don't believe you can feel any speed at all. But because of the air pressure from the atmosphere, yeah. I mean, that's how you feel that stuff, right? I, I, yeah, I met, they could not have felt anything else but like, we will probably going to die here any second now. Right, but I'll bet there's <laughs> at least one or two yeehaws. You think? Yeah. <laughs> Should we take another break? Sure. All right, we'll talk about some... Uh, some of the other Apollo landings, and then what's going on today right after this. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and the last star on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Charles, as we were researching this, um, I went and looked. I was like, surely Michael Collins got another shot up in space. No. No. Well, they made a movie about him. They did, as an Irish revolutionary. <laughs> it was an anachronism. So I, they went I on. his name sounded familiar. <laughs> they went on to do Apollo uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Uh-huh. Uh, and all of them, you know, it, after 11, it was, it was like, the mission is now to, I mean, they got stuff done on 11, but sure. each mission after that had very specific goals that wasn't just just go up to the moon no, and, and of, come back. Of those six, five of them were successful. Very famously, Apollo 13 was not successful. It was an aborted mission that didn't land on the moon. Yeah. But the other five did. And yeah, they were basically really fun scientific journeys. Yeah, should we hit some of these highlights? Yeah. I think Apollo 14 is known for Alan Shepard hitting golf balls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny, all the work they did, and that's like the iconic right. scene is him hitting golf balls. Yeah, and, and some of the stuff that they're doing, too, I mean, like, that's NASA saying, like, go find out how how easy it is to move around in these suits. Right. So Shepard's like, well, I'll hit some golf balls up or there. Or like a golf course might be nice up there one day. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> See what kind See of carry you feasible. get. See if it's feasible, yeah. <laughs> uh, Apollo 15 was the first one where they used that cool – Super cool looking uh, roving vehicle, the lunar mm-hmm. rover. Yeah, that was really neat. They tore it up. Yeah, remember like, that that cartoon Doom Buggy? It was like Scooby Doo, but the instead of being a dog, Scooby Doo was a Doom Buggy. I don't remember that. You're not talking about Wonder Bug, are you? No. Okay. I think it was Doom Buggy. Yeah. I remember Wonder Bug. Wonder Bug was a Doom Buggy. I could see there being more than one of these cartoons. Somebody <laughs> well, ripping off somebody else. Doom Buggies were big in the seventies. Remember seeing those around? Oh, yeah. I bet you could buy a dune buggy today for... Speed buggy. $900. Speed buggy? Speed buggy. All right. Yeah. It was a it was a cartoon from the 60s. Yeah, Wonderbug was live action. Or the 70s, I'm sorry. Was it? Uh-huh. Was, did, the, did the dune buggy talk or something like that? Or? Mm-hmm. Wonderbug? Are you thinking of my mother, the car? <laughs> Maybe I am. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me see. Apollo 17, I think, is noted for more lunar roving. Um, and then a very famous, uh, famous quote as the last one. I love this. Who was it? Gene Cernan. Uh-huh. We leave as we came and God willing as we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. Yeah. That was something that like, you know, the moon landings were part of this space race that grew out of this adversarial relationship of Cold War, USSR, and United States. Mm-hmm. But I do have to say that America did it pretty classy 
when we got there. Sure. Like there were all sorts of like um, talk about peace for humankind and that, mm-hmm. you know, this is one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. It wasn't like USA right. or anything like that face. from the moon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm really heartened by the fact that, that that's how it was done. It was meant to be a mission to the moon for humankind. I think there was a lot of camaraderie with cosmonauts and astronauts themselves. Somewhat. There was a lot of um, there's a lot of commemorative material up there commemorating cosmonauts, both alive and dead, that American astronauts took up with them. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the stuff uh, that we brought back and left mm-hmm. um, from all these missions. And by the way, that last mission, 1972, that's we haven't been back since. No human has left lower Earth orbit, yeah. I believe, since then. It's hard to believe. Yeah. You'd think someone, like, we would have done it for some reason. No, people, I mean, we'll talk about it, but people just lost interest. Yeah. It just became like, whatever. <laughs> Part of it was the Vietnam War. For sure. But but I think it was also just kind of like, okay, we've done that a few times. How, how many rock samples are you guys going to go get? Right. Wow me some other way. Well, and it was expensive and maybe the public sentiment, like how, how much money are we going to pour into getting moon rocks? Sure. Probably had a lot to do with it. So all in, they carted back 2,200 moon rocks. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> just samples. Right. 842 pounds of moon rocks. Core samples, pebbles, dust, sand. Um, and they, you know, it helped them determine how old the moon was. That's not bad. No, they figured something like 4.53 billion years or something like that. Okay. And they also came up with the current um, hypothesis for how the moon was formed, that a, an object named Theia, about mm-hmm. the size of Mars, collided with Earth early on in Earth's formation and merged, but also calved off the moon. So the moon was born from the Earth? Yes. That's pretty neat. Yep. So we left a lot of stuff, though. Yeah, it's kind of like they didn't listen to the Sierra Club. Yeah, 400,000 pounds of stuff that's up there. And a lot of it is just gear, equipment. I mean, they they 70 space vehicles. Yeah. We just left our junk up there, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of junk up there. And they said that they did that on purpose to to see what it would do, see what happened to it. A lot of it. Some of it was also um, that they, they were – it just made sense to displace stuff we didn't need to make room for the weight from these samples and moon rocks. And it was also the 60s when you would just go do a family picnic and <laughs> right. just, like, leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a big um, – there was a debate, and it was finally put to rest. But for a while there, somebody came across some uh, some detail that there's 96 emesis bags – up there on the moon. And what is that? An amesis bag is what you pee, poop, or vomit into mm. if you're an astronaut. Mm-hmm. And so somebody said, oh, my God, there's 96 bags of poop and urine and vomit sitting up on the moon. That's disgusting. And that was the, that's what everybody thought for a very long time. And then a, a NASA lunar archivist said, no, absolutely not. Um, nobody's puked on the moon. For one, okay. only three guys have puked in space, and none of them were on the moon. Um, not only did uh, Aldrin and Armstrong not poop, they actually took a drug <laughs> to keep them from pooping oh. while they were on their lunar mission. Emodium. Aldrin did pee, 
but there's no evidence that he left his bag behind. So they think that these 96 Amesis bags are all empty bags oh, okay. that were unused. So like we didn't need this because we don't vomit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But that was a that's a that's a urban legend. Right. Ripley's poop. Ripley's believe it or not website steered me wrong at first, and then I got <laughs> steered right by I think Slate. Oh, somebody. Well, good for them. Uh, there are some commemorative items uh, besides just the flags. Uh, there are plaques kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Aldrin and Armstrong left one that said, "We came in peace for all mankind." A little on the nose. But still a nice sentiment. Sure. Um, <laughs> a disc with 73 messages from countries all over the world. Micro-etched. Yeah. Just to show off more technology of the 60s. Uh, like you said earlier, they honor their Russian, uh, Russian cosmonaut um, counterparts, I guess, with medals. Uh, and then a symbol of the U.S. eagle carrying an olive branch. Yep. And then, you know, they all left stuff when they went up there, including... Uh, Charlie Duke, who I talked about from Apollo 16. I love this one. He took a picture of his family and left it behind. Yep. So what are you going to do, NASA administrators? Nothing. Yeah. So he left it behind. They think now that it's probably blank, though. That's sad. From the solar radiation. Yeah. And his family subsequently disappeared. Yeah. (laughs) Just like on Back (laughs) to the Future. That's right. Their souls are trapped on the moon forever. Something else was smuggled, too, though, right? Um, uh, that one, a commemorative plaque was smuggled. Right. Apollo 15, David Scott smuggled an aluminum plaque. Why would he have to smuggle that? I don't know. They I, just had, it was off the charter or whatever. I guess. I don't know why. I know one guy smuggled a, a sandwich once. <laughs> really? Yeah. One of them did. I can't remember. My a, brother. like a roast beef sandwich. My brother at one time smuggled a PB&J into a Dire Straits concert. No. <laughs> yeah. Did he really? Yeah, it's kind of, we still laugh about it. One of the nerdiest things ever it was like <laughs> really? three songs in when he's like, you want a sandwich? <laughs> he just starts unwrapping it. Like, that's hilarious. It's great. Wrapped in wax paper? I think it was. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what an Eagle Scout. So uh, neither one of us were Boy Scouts, actually. It's really? Because mm-hmm. uh, my brother would have owned that. Sure. And his son went all the way through, of course. Wait, is your brother envious? Is he like Michael Collins? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, but here's the deal with all that stuff up there is uh, lunar tourism is going to be a thing at some point. Yes, it is. So NASA actually had to establish lunar heritage sites and rules like you can't go within certain amount with like don't go near any of this stuff, basically. Right. If you see a rover, just turn around and walk the other way, right. which is like or hop the other way, I guess. Yeah, don't fall down. Man, can you imagine like. Seeing a lunar rover and being like, oh, dude. can't go over there. But on the moon, too, like, just see, oh, my gosh, frozen in time. It'd be so Creepsville. It'd be awesome. <laughs> Creepsville? Yeah. So what's going on these days? Well, so you said they're, they're, we haven't been back since to no. the moon, which is really kind of astounding if you I think know. about it. But understandably, like, political interest, pu- public interest, a lot of it waned. That means funding dried up. Um, And because the moon kind of got left behind, NASA was like, well, we'll just focus on lower Earth orbit stuff and really went all in on the shuttle program. Right. And then um, also on the International Space Station. Both, again, are are in lower Earth orbit, not in what you think of as like outer space, right? Um, And then the Obama administration came. No, I'm sorry. The the space shuttle accident accident. that blew up the Columbia yeah. um, in 2003 um, caused George Bush to say, George W. Bush to say, hey, we let's bounce back. Let's go back to the moon by 2020. Right. 
And um, that's not happening now. No. So the NASA got directed back to the moon and Obama's administration did an audit and found that NASA was so far behind that we wouldn't make it back to the moon by 2030. Mm -hmm. So Obama said, go to Mars instead. This is this is par for the course for NASA. Every few years, they get a completely new directive to somewhere else in the solar system. And they have to scramble to like change plans, (laughs) try to salvage whatever they were working on. And they've gotten kind of good at applying stuff they're working on to to basically fudge to say, okay, we're working on this this Mars this Mars launcher right now, the SLS, the space launch system. Yeah. And yeah, it can get us to Mars. But we could really also go to the moon with this thing, too. Yeah, they're cross-trained. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, after the Obama administration came along and said, forget the moon, forget the shuttle program, go to Mars, that started languishing. And then um, the current administration said, let's go back to the moon. The current administration said, what did Obama say? Right. We'll, we'll do the opposite <laughs> of that. <laughs> right. So now the, man, now the current target date is mind-bogglingly tight. Yeah. The the target is to put humans on the moon again in five years, 2024, and four years after that, establish a moon base. That is extremely ambitious. Yeah, and I think most people um, kind of acknowledge, like, you know, we're not going to hit that date, but well, hopefully— Well, NASA doesn't. Are they still on— These are outsiders. Still like, say they're on target? Mm-hmm. Well, even the outsiders, I think, are saying it hopefully will be within a few years of that date. Right. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, one reason why it is possible is because NASA today has a thriving commercial space industry yeah. to work with, and they, they are embracing wholehearted partnering with them. Now, how does that work? They just pay those uh, private firms a lot of money to yeah. to tap their resources? Yeah. If you get a contract to build the, the lunar lander for NASA— you might as well just be printing money. Yeah. Um, the I think the current administrator for NASA um, estimated recently that it would be about $30 billion to get back to the moon. Wow. And they put out a call to designs um, for designs for their lunar, lunar lander. And so Jeff Bezos, remember I went to New York to see the Blue Origin unveiling? That's right. That's what he was doing, was unveiling their thing called Blue Moon. It's mm-hmm. a lunar lander. It's got a flat top like kid and play. Mm-hmm. And um, you can put anything on it, a lunar rover, a bunch of scientists, mm-hmm. a lab, whatever you want, or pieces to a uh, space base, a, a moon base, mm-hmm. and build it slowly like that. Um, and it looks pretty good. Nice. And it runs on hydrogen, which is big because they're going to start landing on the south pole of the moon, which is where they think permanent ice is, which can be yeah. mined, right? Yeah, they haven't uh, they haven't been to the South Pole. No. First of all, with any of the Apollo missions, so that makes a lot of sense to go there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, they got ice there. They can uh, split that hydrogen and oxygen mm-hmm. uh, thanks to electrolysis, and then they can make rocket fuel to use to get back potentially. Yeah, I mean the the uh, command module when it was orbiting the the moon. It was operating on liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. So this is like an old technology. Yeah. But the new thing is we would be mining it on the moon. Amazing. And the 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 kind of the logical conclusion of that then is if we can establish a permanent presence on the moon, that's the new motto. Mm-hmm. So this program, which I think is kind of awesome, is called the Artemis program. Yeah. This return to the moon. Sister to uh, Apollo. Apollo. Yeah. Right. Which makes sense. But it's also the program that's expected to put the first woman on the moon, which that's is right. pretty cool. Um, but the 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 way that they're saying it is now we're going to return to the moon and stay there. 
Like that's the point. Like we're permanently returning to the moon now. Um, so once we do that, we'll have a new place to launch in outer space. Right. I mean, remember how many pounds of thrust and how much fuel oh, sure. that first stage of the Saturn took. And then the second stage, yeah. this doesn't require any of them. And so the plan is to build a small space station in permanent orbit around the moon that you fly out to. And then just like you keep a boat at your lake house tied up, mm-hmm. they're going to keep a lunar lander tied up mm-hmm. to that to that um, that that space station, yeah. and you just kind of go back and forth to the moon using that. Amazing. It is pretty amazing, and they're talking about doing this in five years. Can you imagine the quality of uh, video and audio that we're going to get this time? It's going to be great. It's going to be pretty sweet. And I've seen that they are starting to, like you were talking about with commercial tourism, like I saw something like five million can get you to the moon. It's pretty on soon. the moon or That's, just uh, orbiting the moon. Oh, I'm sorry to the to the space station, the ISS. Oh, okay. Five million, which $5 is million. not bad because they wanted to charge Lance Bass like thirty million or something crazy like that. Remember, it's like HD TVs back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's that price is going to just keep coming down. Everybody, yeah. pretty soon you're going to be able to go to the moon for a cool seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Even Lance Bass can afford that. <laughs> yeah. You got anything else? No, sir. Well, congratulations to the world for 50 years of having been on the moon the first time. Hooray! I'm proud of us. Uh, And since Chuck said hooray, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this one I've been meaning to read for a while. We did a show about Live Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas. And we were like, we love that song. Who doesn't love that song? Turns out a lot of people don't love that song. Really? Because the message is flawed. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, when you look at the lyrics. Uh... Hey guys, was listening to the show on Live Aid and the song Do They Know It's Christmas. Woo, that's such a great song. Uh, Call me a fuddy-duddy, but what I hear is this. There won't be any snow in Africa this Christmas time. Check. Uh, The greatest gift they'll get this year is life. And he went, ooh. I think, okay. He said, where nothing ever grows. It's like, that's not possible. Africa's a large continent with lots of growing things. Okay. Uh, No rains or rivers flow. Ever heard of the Nile? That's North Africa. <laughs> um, he said basically it treats Africa as a single homogenous region when in fact it's incredibly large and diverse. I can see that. Uh, ignores the fact that most of Africa is in the southern hemisphere, so Christmas is in the summer there. <laughs> and assumes that lack of knowledge of Christmas is a flaw caused by lack of resources and good weather rather than a reasonable cultural difference considering the large uh, that a large percentage of Africans are not Christian. I think this guy's taking the do they know it's Christmas literally. Well, a lot of people wrote in about this, I gotta say. I think the point of the lyrics was they have so much hardship in front of their faces. Uh-huh. Are they even aware that Christmas time has come? The holiday spirit and season hasn't even shown up there because there's so much hardship. That's the point of the lyrics. Come on. <laughs> He finishes by saying this. It's okay if you like the song. It's catchy, but please don't claim that everyone should like it. Everyone should like that song. And that's uh, anonymous from a bunch of people. I'll bet you're anonymous. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thank you for writing, and we always love opposing opinions, right? Thanks, Bono. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> He's like, if my lyrics had been accepted, it would have been a much better song. Yeah. Uh, well, if you want to point out that something we like is actually heinous, we love hearing that kind of stuff. You can go on to StuffYouShouldKnow.com, and there you're going to find all of our social links. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's it. And you can send us an email, which makes even more sense. 
Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Ready, set, griddle this grilling season. Get the Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle with a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge. It reaches up to 500 degrees, and the Weber Works Prep Cook and Store system keeps cooking supplies handy. You can carry all the food, condiments, and utensils you need. So get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. 